Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to NCF. Good to see all of you on this August morning. We especially want to welcome you, as Pastor James says, those of you who might be visiting us for the first time, and especially if you're here investigating the Christian faith. If you're someone considering the claims of Jesus, uh, we hope and pray that our time together would really be encouraging and edifying and, most of all, educational in helping you understand what we Christians believe and what we put our faith and hope in. If you have your Bibles or if you could turn on your apps to our passage for today, we go to Matthew's Gospels, the fifth chapter, and we're going to read the first 12 verses, and we're going to take a look at what Jesus has to say about this thing known as perspective that I'm going to talk about in today's message. So without further ado, let's read together God's Word. Hear now the reading of God's Word. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please bow your heads with me. Father, we ask now that as we have heard your word publicly read, that your spirit would now descend upon us and stir within us a deeper understanding, a knowledge that would change and transform us, knowledge that would be revealing to who we are and to who you are and to what we are to do in this life that you have given us to live. Father, we ask that you would continue to be with us as a community of faith, that we would be a community that is not for ourselves, but ultimately for the flourishing of this world as it shows a sign of who you are, the one who created all of this, so that you would be glorified in the flourishing of those who bear your image. Oh God, you have given to us so much. And Lord, we know that you do not call us to repay back to you, for who could ever pay back the great works in which you have done on our behalf? And yet, we do respond with gratitude, with a sacrificial spirit and deep devotional love for you, for we have been captured by you to where now we are free from all the things that have trapped us and have disabled us from living the lives which you've called us to live, the lives that we so aspire to live. And so, God, as we now sit at your feet, teach us once again of the wonderful truths and promises that are contained in your gospel so that once again we would feel empowered, equipped, and enabled to fulfill the great commission that you have given us to do of being a blessing to the world. Oh, God, would you now bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are living in very turbulent times right now. And one of the driving forces behind all this turbulence in our culture today can really be boiled down to one word, perspective. Perspective. There are differences of perspectives out there, and because of these differences, and more specifically, because these perspectives are not being acknowledged, there is chaos, there is vitriol, there is even violence. 
just to give you a sampling of the various perspectives that are out there right now, there are some in our society who have a certain perspective of sexuality and gender identity that they are demanding to be acknowledged and respected and approved of. There are some people out there who have certain perspectives about health care and immigration that they are demanding that it be acknowledged and respected and approved of. There's a perspective out there right now by some with regard to race, specifically the white race, that they are demanding to be accepted, respected, and even approved of. And here's what I've noticed. The more that these perspectives are not acknowledged or respected and approved of, the more negativity, the more hostility, and the more chaos that we see in our culture today. People want their point of view recognized. People want their point of view respected. And most of all, they want it to be judged as acceptable and appropriate. Otherwise, there's conflict, even downright violence. As I've been processing all the things that we have witnessed in our culture recently, I've come to ask myself the question, is this how Christians are to react when our Christian perspectives are not shared by those around us? Is this how Christians are to behave in our society when the things that define our perspectives as Christians is not respected or accepted or even approved of? Well, believe it or not, there are some Christians out there who say, yes, absolutely. When our perspectives as Christians are not accepted or respected or recognized, we should react with negativity. We should push back. We should demand our rights. We should protest. Maybe we should even get hostile, to which I would respond, are you sure about that, Christian? Are you sure that's the case? Because when we look at this passage in Matthew 5, Jesus would say, that is not so. Because here he's going to show us not only what the Christian perspective is, but what our response should be to those who may not share our unique perspectives as Christians. Our text for today is Matthew chapter 5, the beginning portion of what is known famously as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And in today's portion of that sermon, we're going to take a look at this concept of what Jesus, that I'm referring to, as the Christian perspective. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. First, let's talk about a Christian's perspective of themselves. Then let's talk about a Christian's perspective of other people. And finally, let's end it with Christ's perspective of the Christian. A Christian's perspective of themselves, of other people, and finally, Christ's perspective of us as Christians. Let's jump right in. First, a Christian's perspective of themselves. Can we have our passage up there, please, on the screen? Starting in verse 3, down to verse 6, Jesus says the following words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied now. The immediate thing that you will notice as you read these three verses, how often Jesus utilizes one word over and over and over again. And it's the word blessed, right? He says it over and over. Blessed, 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 or blessed, 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 depending on how you enunciate it. Potato, potato, whatever, right? Blessed, 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 blessed. To which we ask ourselves, what exactly is that word, blessed? I mean, it's not a word that we hear often outside of these church walls. And even for those of us who did grow up in the church, we hear this word over and over. We're like, what the heck does it even mean? Right? We hear it all the time, but we wonder, do you really know what it means? What does it mean to be blessed? Well, turns out, if you read these same verses in another English translation of the Bible, it gives us some illumination because in other English translations, instead of using the word blessed, it uses another word. You know what it is? It's the word happy. 
So in some translations it says, happy are those who are poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are meek, right? Turns out the Greek word translated as blessed in our translation, markurios, is the same word for happy. Now, when you are aware of that, it may cause you to think that, wow, Jesus sounds utterly crazy. (laughs) Jesus sounds ridiculous. It may even reinforce a bias that some of you may already have, which you'll never admit to me or to Pastor James, but you really have deep down if you're honest, which is Jesus Christ has no idea of what really makes me happy. I know what makes me happy, and Jesus doesn't seem to agree. Hence, Jesus has no idea what would make me happy happy. I mean, after all, who in their right mind would ever find happiness in being poor in spirit, whatever that means, or being mournful, right? Or being meek. Probably not that many of us. And so we think, Jesus, do you really have the right perspective of me? Do you really know who I am? Do you really know what I'm about? Many of us would probably say, well, maybe not. But as we're about to see, Jesus is actually going to turn the tables on us because he's going to show us that it's actually us who don't understand us. It's actually ourselves that we have the wrong perspective of, and it's Jesus who has the right perspective of us. Let me explain what I mean. Take a look at what he says in verse 3 and focus on that phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. It's a phrase that many of us are not familiar with. Poor in spirit, what is that? But we do recognize the very first word that begins that statement, right? Poor. We definitely know what that word means. We know what it means to be poor. What's poor? To be poor is in a condition where you don't have the things that you desperately need, right? Where you don't have the things that require for living, whether it's food, whether it's water, whether it's shelter. We know what it means to be poor. It means to be impoverished and to be uh, neglected of the things that you need in order to live. And yet Jesus says here that it's good, that it's blessed to be poor in spirit. How can that be? How could it ever be good to be in a poor condition, let alone whatever he means by poor in spirit. How do you understand that? Let me use this illustration. I'm going to date myself. You know, back in 97, that's 1997, not 2097, but back in 97, there was a movie that came out starring Demi Moore called G.I. Jane. Anyone in here see G.I. Jane, right? It actually, the reason why I thought about that movie recently is because it turns out that recently, two women recently have now uh, signed up to serve on the Navy SEALs, right? And it's, the, it's crazy because never before have the Navy allowed women, let alone in combat, serve on the most elite special forces group. But two women recently, back in June, applied to serve in uh, the Navy SEALs. But back in 97, no women were allowed to serve in combat. And so they came out with this movie imagining, what would it be like for a woman to actually go through Bud's training? right? To go through Navy SEAL training and to be more as this woman, right? And so in this movie, it's all about her attempts to try and get into this elite special force, you know, combat group, right? The best special elite force in the world. And there's one scene in the movie where she and the rest of her recruits are on the beach doing tremendous, tremendous stressful physical exercise, physical training, PT, they call it in the military, right? And as they're grimacing in pain, as they're moaning, some are even crying out in misery, his instructor, instructor says these following words. Can we have the quote up there? He says this, pain is your friend, your ally. It will tell you when you are seriously injured. It will keep you awake and angry and remind you to finish the job and get home. But you know the best thing about pain? It lets you know that you are not dead yet. Here's a situation where something that's normally very bad and something you should never look forward to, pain, 
actually is a very good thing because it is a symptom that makes you aware that something even more tragic than pain hasn't occurred, namely your death, physical death. He's saying pain, though it is not a good thing to go through, even though pain is not something that you want to embrace, nevertheless, it is a good thing because it tells you that something worse could happen and it hasn't happened yet, hence the possibility of avoiding it. Believe it or not, Jesus is essentially saying the same thing when he talks about spiritual poverty. See, spiritual poverty is not in and of itself a good thing, and yet to experience it is a good thing because it's a symptom that something worse than spiritual poverty hasn't happened and that you could possibly avoid it. And what's that? Spiritual death. Not physical death. But spiritual death, according to Jesus and really the whole Bible, there is nothing worse than the condition of being spiritually dead. And you know what it means to be spiritually dead? It means you are forever and utterly separated from God himself. You know, when you are in pain on the threshold of death, there is nothing more beautiful to you at that moment than life, right? Life is the most precious thing at that moment. There's nothing in which you would ever take for granted in a moment where you're in such pain that you know you could possibly die. The same thing is true when you're in a condition of spiritual poverty. When you're in a condition of spiritual poverty, there is nothing more precious, more amazing, more delightful than who? God, who is the source of life. Ah, now we understand why Jesus says it's good for us to be spiritually poor. It's good for us to be in this condition where we know, where we are aware of how desperate we are and how desperate we need God and how desperately beautiful and precious God is. And that's the condition, Jesus says, you and I are to be in all the time. And yet the sad reality is that's not the condition where most of us are. I cannot tell you how sad and how grievous it is to me as a pastor, as your pastor, to encounter some Christians, maybe even to encounter some of you, where you'll say with your mouth, yes, I'm desperate for God. Yes, God is so important. Yes, he's my all in all. And yet when you look at the way you live your life, just in all practicality, the message that you're communicating to me is that God is more of an extracurricular concern rather than a vital So many of us can say, yes, God is my all in all. God is so important to me. God is so precious. God is my lifeline. And yet, the way we live our lives, it seems that's not the case. Why? Because many of us are very comfortable. Or we're right at the cusp of being comfortable, and we're trying to push ourselves to get there, to being permanently comfortable. Life is good. The job, satisfying. The marriage, pretty decent. The children, uh, for the most part, I love them, right? I'm in stable relationships. I have a good income level, at least for now. Or at least I know that I will have a nice income. Life is comfortable. And because life is comfortable, even though you say with your mouth, I need God, the way you live your life is, I can maybe not do without him sometimes. Because life can be too comfortable for some of us, People do not believe in their heart of hearts that God really is the most precious, the most vital thing that we could ever have. It's kind of sad, really. I almost see it as kind of like a situation where a person's back is on fire, but because their nerves are so dead, they don't feel the burning of the flames on them. They just walk around thinking, oh, life is good. Christian, if you want to know whether or not you have the right perspective of yourself, let me ask you this question. Are you spiritually poor? 
Do you feel desperate for God? Do you feel that if you didn't have God, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter how the quality of your relationships around you, you would feel the most, most impoverished, desperate person on the face of the earth? If you don't, right? Scripture would say that you are to be pitied more than any other person on the face of the earth. But if you are a person who is aware of how important God is, how precious God is, how vital God is, Oh, the consequences, the effects of that are amazing because once you embrace the reality of the perspective that you really are spiritually poor, like a series of dominoes falling, you will start living out all the other blessed statements that Jesus speaks of in verses 4 to 6. Look again at what he says. Blessed are those who what? Mourn for your sinfulness. Why would you mourn for your sinfulness? Because you know you're spiritually poor. Right? You know that without God, God who you love and God who, is you, who you see with all your might as your most precious, valuable thing, when you sin against this God, you're going to mourn over it, which means when you sin, you're not going to try and minimize it by saying, oh, that was just a flawed judgment moment, or that was a little mistake, or, nor will you try to justify yourself by saying, well, compared to this person, I'm not as bad, right? You'll do none of that. You'll genuinely mourn when you're spiritually poor, when God is your greatest Furthermore, in verse 5, you will be meek. You will be humble when you're poor in spirit. Why? Because you know that this God that you hunger and thirst for is so greater than you that you have no warrant, no justification to even pout your chest up and think that you're something when in fact that you're nothing at all. And finally, in verse 6, you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will want to be so close to this God that you're desperate for. You'll want to do everything in your power to make this God pleased with you. Your greatest fear will not be what this God can do to you, but what your sins could do to him. And so you'll hunger and thirst for righteousness in a way to be pleasing in his sight. Everything that Jesus speaks of from verses 4 to 6 are simply the beautiful consequences that stem from seeing yourself as spiritually poor. Someone who is in desperate need of God in every moment of your life. In other words, when you are spiritually poor, you become a humble person, you become a person of integrity, you become a person of ethics. And when you become that person that stems from your spiritual poverty, that changes your perspective of other people. What do I mean by that? Well, to explain, let me go to my next point. A Christian's perspective of other people. Let's go down to verse 7. And read down to verse 10, where Jesus says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here, Jesus has now gone into the second half of his blessed statements, and he begins this portion by saying the following in verse 7, Blessed are those who show mercy or simply blessed are the merciful in our translation. But that's the question, is it not? As we come to another term that we hear so often and yet may not know. What does it mean to be merciful? What does it mean to show mercy? What is that? I like how one theologian by the name of John Stott, how he defines it for us. Because I think it really hits the nail on the head. He says the following. To show mercy is to show compassion for people in need. To show mercy is to show compassion for people in need. Mercy is compassion. Mercy is compassion. Now here's the thing when it comes to that word compassion. Whenever you read the Gospels and the life of Jesus, Jesus is always showing compassion to people. Is he not? He's always compassionate. But here's a pattern that you notice. 
Every time Jesus is being compassionate towards a group of people, those groups of people almost always are people who are struggling. They're the poor. They're the people in poverty. For example, in all four Gospels, we see the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. The only story that we see in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in all four instances, it says that Jesus had compassion on the crowd for they were like what? Sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they were hungry, they were starving, they were homeless, they had nowhere to go. They were poor. Interesting. Jesus is coming back again to this notion of poverty, of being poor. Why? He just ended the first half of the blessed portion of the sermon by talking about being poor in spirit, us. That's the perception we need to have of ourselves. Why again is he repeating this theme of being poor? poor. Well, you may not realize this, but if you take a closer look at all of these blessed statements from verses 7 to 10, there's another thing they have in common. You know what it is? It's our perspective towards other people, specifically people who don't share the perspectives that we have as followers of God, the perspective Christians are to have towards our neighbor. Jesus is trying to make a point here, and you know what it is? It's simply this. He's trying to show us that the way we look at other people should be no different to how we look at ourselves, which is simply another way of saying how we look at ourselves should be no different to how we look at other people. Do you know why we have a hard time being compassionate towards other people? Do you know why it's so hard for us to be compassionate, to be filled with compassion and kindness towards other people? You know why? It's because we carry this assumption that this person that is calling us to be compassionate towards them is so different from us. We say, in our, we say in our hearts, man, I would never be like this person, or I would never do what this person does. I would not be as dumb as this person is, or I would not be as racist as that person is, or I would not be as foolish as this person is, or selfish or greedy, right? The reason why we have such a hard time extending compassion or kindness, or even forgiveness if people ask for it, is because we carry this assumption that that group of people or that person is nothing like me. Meaning, I am inherently superior. They are inherently inferior to me. Here's the question, folks. Why does Jesus, in this sermon, first begin with the perspective we are to have of ourselves before he talks about the perspective we are to have of other people? Isn't that interesting in terms of the order of it all? Why does Jesus begin by first saying, hey, before you even think about other people, think about yourself. Think about how you see yourself. How should you see yourself? You should see yourself as being utterly poor. You should see yourself as spiritually impoverished. You should see yourself as someone who should mourn over your sins because you are a sinner. You should be someone who should seek to be meek because you are arrogant. You should be someone who seeks to, you get it? Jesus wants us to begin with the perspective of how debased we are. Why? Because there's no way for us to ever position ourselves in a position of superiority against anyone else around us. To where we create this artificial wall of separation and say, I am nothing like you. You are nothing like me. Hence, I will never show compassion. But if we first recognize that Jesus says that we are poor in spirit, that never happens. And as a result, we're able to have the perspective Jesus wants us to have towards those around us, towards those who don't share our Christian views. And you know what that perspective is? It's the perspective of compassion, a compassionate 
perspective. In the city of Los Angeles lives a woman by the name of Shelley Lubin, a soccer mom of three, stay-at-home mom of three, and she does an interesting thing for a living. She goes to all the uh, adult entertainment industry conventions throughout the city of Los Angeles. She goes to all the porn conventions in L.A. And you know what she does at these conventions? She reaches out to porn stars, and she actually ministers to them. She gives them information to all the health clinics, you know, that provide goods and services. She even distributes health care products, and she helps women who want to get out of the industry because, believe it or not, brothers, there are women in the industry who want to get out but they can't because they're desperate for money because it's fueled by our lusts. But there are women who want to desperately get out, but they have nowhere to go. She takes them in. She brings them into her home. She actually lets them sleep in her house with her three children. You're thinking to yourself, what is this woman thinking? Why would she let these kinds of people into her home? This soccer mom of three, why would Shelly Lubin do such a thing? Because Shelly Lubin, at one point, was Roxy, the porn star. Shelley Lubin used to be a porn actress herself. But she came to a point in her life where Jesus invaded her heart. She realized how spiritually impoverished she was, and all of a sudden, her views of herself and of her fellow porn stars changed to where she had compassion, who, quite frankly, many in the church today have no compassion at all. And she had a perspective of compassion towards people, that society, even those who indulge in such things, judge and crucify in their hearts. You see, it starts when when you have a proper perspective of your own spiritual impoverishment, that when you see other people who are in such a poor condition as well, you don't say, I'm nothing like you, get away from me, you disgust me, but rather you say, how can I help you? How can I enable you to get back on your feet? How can I extend to you the compassion of love that Christ extended to me? Because here's the deal. You are no different from me. I am no different from you. When you get to that moment of perspective, even for those who differ from your Christian perspectives, it changes the way how you treat people. You know how it changes you? It changes you the way that Jesus defines it in verses 8, 9, and 10. How does it change you? When you have compassion and perspective, first of all, it makes you, verse 8, pure in heart. You know what that means? It means you're not fake. It means you don't act like you're something that you're not. You don't act like, hey, I'm better than that group of people. I'm more put together. I don't have issues like they do. No, you are pure in heart. You can be honest with them and yourself by saying, I'm no different from you. That's what it means to be pure in heart. It doesn't simply mean to be righteous morally. It also means that you're pure in how you see yourself. You're not tainting your view of yourself. You're being honest, and the honest view is, I'm broken just like you. Verse 9, it makes you into a peacemaker. You know what that means? It means you are a person who wants to extend peace. You want to forgive. Someone who hurts you, you're willing to forgive and extend the branch of peace to them. Because you know that without Jesus, you might be just or worse like them in offending others like they have offended you. And finally, verse 10, you endure persecution. You know what that means? It means you don't get revenge. You don't get payback. You don't wish for the downfall of those who are against you. You don't celebrate when they fall on their faces or when they fall into scandal or when their reputation is sullied. You don't celebrate and rejoice and say, yeah, sucker. You don't do that. 
you endure persecution. You know why? Because you don't carry the assumption that a person who is filled with revenge is filled with, which is, I wouldn't have done this to me if I were you, and therefore I need to get payback. That's the underlying assumption behind revenge. Did you know that? But when you know your poor spirit and you know you could do the same thing, that you could be just as persecutory as the person who's persecuting you, you endure it. Mainly you don't seek revenge. You don't seek to unnecessarily harm and hurt those who are harming and hurting you. You see, it's only by seeing people as you see yourself as you should, spiritually poor, that you're able to be compassionate, that you're able to have the perspective of compassion. Now, some of you are hearing all this, and you have two responses. Number one, you're probably thinking, oh, pastor, I can't do this. You don't understand how much this person or this group of people have hurt me, how much they've harmed my, my, my race, my culture, my generation. As much as I want to be compassionate, I have a hard time. I'm trying to, but I can't. I was watching a TV show with my wife the other day where a son was so angry at his mom because the mom cheated on, her, uh, on his father. And at one point, he said in an argument to his mom, or in an attempt to reconcile with his mom, he says, I want to stop being angry at you, but I can't. I want to stop being angry at you, but I can't. You know? You ever felt that way before? Maybe that's where you're at right now. You want to stop being angry, but yet you can't. Another group of you are not even there. You're still stuck on the first point of the sermon, which is, I'm so comfortable, Pastor John. And I know God should be my all in all. I know God should be my greatest treasure. I should be hungering and thirsting for him. I should be desperate for him. But I can't let go of my obsession, my fearful obsession to be comfortable because I'm so afraid of being uncomfortable. What do I do? The answer to both questions leads me to my final point, Christ's perspective of the Christian. You know, when I was in youth group, I knew this kid named James. Not that James, but I knew a kid named James. And he was such an unhappy boy. So bitter, so angry. And you know, the main reason why he was so angry was because of his mom. See, he was the oldest of two. His younger brother, the Mangna, was seven years younger. And he felt so jealous, so insecure, to where every time I met him at Sunday after youth group service, the thing is like, man, you know what my mom did today? Or you know what my mom did last week? And he would get so bitter and so angry, almost progressively as the weeks went by, about how much his mom withheld the love that he was entitled to have by virtue of being the son, right, being the firstborn. And he was just so angry because, like, my mom doesn't give me the love I'm entitled to have. My mom doesn't, she loves my brother more than she loves me. Now, I knew his mom, and his mom was not a wicked woman, right? In fact, I think he loved this boy, James, too much. He would go, she would go out of her way to try and persuade him that she did love him as much as the second you know what you know she did? She did this crazy thing. She bought him a Movado watch. You guys remember Movado? Movado is like, none of you guys are like, Who, who's Movado? He got a Movado watch when he was 16 years old, right? It's like, your mom got you a Movado watch? It's like, so? That's just a bare minimum, right? I was like, I don't even own a watch, right? When he was 18, mom bought him a brand new car, Jeep Cherokee Laredo, olive green. I remember it. Your mom got you a new car? He was like, she can afford it. I was so selfish, so bitter, all because he thought his mom owed him her love for him, right? If 
Fast forward a couple years when I was in seminary, I ran into him in Philly. He was different, man. He was like happy. He wasn't a jerk. I was like, I gotta find out what happened to this kid, right? It's like, did you find Jesus? No. I was like, is there something else besides Jesus that'll change it? What is it? Right? So I had dinner with him that night. And he's married. Oh, not married. He was he was engaged, excuse me. He was engaged to this woman. And I asked him, what changed, dude? Why are you so decent? <laughs> you know, I said, what happened to you? How can you be a normal human being now? And he starts crying in front of me. Right? He starts crying. I, like, I, like, I'm, I get uncomfortable around people who cry around me, to be honest. Not, not you guys. I'm your pastor. I love it when you cry, so I'll be there for you. But he starts crying. I'm like, what happened? Right? Does she have cancer? Is this a great drama before me? No, but she was like, he was like, this girl loves me, and she, I don't deserve her love. I know I don't deserve it. I went away that night thinking, how interesting. When you act or believe that you're entitled to someone's love, that love will not change you. It keeps you who you are. You encounter a love that you know is grace, a love you don't deserve. Oh, my goodness, how it changes you. That's the love that we encounter in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the news that God, through Jesus Christ, loved you with an undeserving, extravagant, costly love that none of us in here could ever afford, none of us in here could ever demand, none of us in here could ever say, we're entitled to it. But the problem is, for some of you, for me, for all of us, There are moments in our lives, maybe too many moments, where we think we are entitled to the love of God. Where we think we deserve it. It's like, God, you're God. You're supposed to love me. Really? And so when you read passages like this, you read phrases like, blessed are the poor spirit. Completely goes in one year and out the other. But instead you fixate on, you will inherit the earth. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And you completely gloss over the most important parts of the sermon. Because that's how you see God's love for you. It has no practical power to change you. Where's my Movado watch, God? Where's my wife? Where's my Jeep? Where's my house? Where is it, God? You don't love me, God. You love that Christian more than you love this Christian. Right? But if you look at the love of God the way my friend James looked at his fiance love, oh man, how it changes you. How it makes you so different. How it makes you transform from the inside out. And here's what's amazing Jesus loves us with this compassionate love. But do you know what's amazing about that? We show compassion because we know that we're no better than the person that we're being compassionate towards. But is Jesus better than us? Is he inherently superior to us? Is he so much saying, I'm nothing like you, you are nothing like me? Yeah. If there's anyone who has the right to withhold compassion, to withhold forgiveness, to withhold kindness, it's him. And yet he is willing to show compassion to you at the cost of of being humiliated, of being tortured, of being killed by the very people he's being compassionate towards. That fiance's love is nothing compared to the love of God in Jesus Christ for you and how it can change you. 
were the better. Do you believe that? You and I are poor in spirit, which basically means we are broken, we are sinful, we are perverted, we are selfish to where we don't deserve any of the blessings that he says here. So instead of inheriting the kingdom of God, we should inherit the kingdom of Satan. Instead of receiving comfort, we should have eternal suffering. Instead of having the earth, we should deserve to be buried in the earth forever. Instead of being satisfied, we should be deprived. Instead of having mercy, we should reserve wrath. Instead of seeing God, we should be blinded by God to never see him again. But even though all this is true, it is no longer true because Christ has come to be your Savior substitute by dying on the cross for your sins so that he could pour out his love for you by the giving of the Spirit in your hearts so that you could see yourself for who you are, that you could have compassion on those who don't share your perspectives. But it all begins on how you receive the love of God. Do you receive it with the attitude, it's about time? Or do you have it with the attitude of, how could I ever have it now or ever? I want to ask you now to bow your heads with me. And I want to ask you to reflect on a little bit of some of the things that Jesus is challenging us in our passage for today. It's basically three questions. The first is simply this. Do you see yourself as a spiritually poor person? In other words, do you find yourself desperate for God? Think about the things that you really want for your life right now, whether it's a scenario, whether it's an image of an object, whether it's a person. Is God in any of these scenarios at all? Is God the object that you are desperately yearning for with your heart? And as you think about that, allow me to ask you this. Are there people in your life right now God has placed in front of you to show compassion? People who don't share your perspective? People who don't think like you? People who may even be against you? And do you have compassion towards them? Or do you think, man, I'm nothing like you. I want to get away from you. Leave me alone. I want to separate from you. Is it a group of people? Is it an entire generation? Is it a family member? And is the reason why you don't show compassion to them is because you believe you would never do what they have done to you or to someone else? And finally, we end it with the love of God. Do you perceive his love evidenced by how you behave that you are entitled to his love? Or do you recognize it for what it truly is, a gracious compassionate, merciful love. Go to him now in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to apply today's message to your hearts and to your lives. Let's pray together.